The word of the Lord comes to us today from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 12. If you have one of our red Bibles, that would be page 1014. As we now continue uh, series through First and Second Peter, we're looking here at the uh, opening prayer that Peter offers, having given his introduction in verses 1 and 2. So I invite you to stand once more as we read verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed In the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, you who have given your word as a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, And you who know exactly where it needs to illumine us today. We pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would minister the word to us. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. may be seated. In J.R.R. Tolkien's classic, The Lord of the Rings, two hobbits, Frodo and his gardener Sam, are on a quest to destroy a ring of power that threatens the security of all Middle-earth. They've taken a long journey, and the only place that they can destroy this ring is in the land of Mordor, at the mountain where the ring was first made, a volcanic volcanic mountain called Mount Doom. By the time they even reach the, the border of the land of Mordor, Frodo and Sam are exhausted. They've been on a long journey that's brought them near death many times. They set out with a number of companions in the beginning, but two of those companions have died. The others they decided that they had to leave behind. Their food rations are running low. They're coming to terms with the fact that even if their quest is successful, they probably will not have the supplies they need to get back home alive. So in this 
orc-ridden land that is covered by a visible shadow of evil, Frodo and Sam are finding it hard to maintain any hope. And on one evening as Frodo lies down to sleep, Sam stays up to keep watch. Tolkien tells us this. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the Efelduath in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle among the, uh, twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now for a moment his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep and untroubled sleep. Sam draws comfort by looking up at an objective reality, a beautiful star that is far beyond the reach of the shadow that covers him. For a brief moment, he sees through a break in the cloud to the light that shines above, and the hope of that transcendent beauty and goodness puts the shadow into proper perspective. Peter writes this letter to believers in the first century in Asia Minor who are facing their own shadow. He notes in verse 6 that they're facing various trials. Now that would include persecution and opposition for their faith, but we shouldn't limit it to that. Peter doesn't seem to want to limit it. He calls it various trials, trials of various sorts. And he writes this letter in part to tell his readers who are facing the shadow of these trials over them, look up. Look up beyond the shadow. See the beauty of the hope that can carry you through your trials. I don't have to ask whether some of you are facing your own shadow this morning. I know that you are. Or I know that you will be at some point in the future. Perhaps you have taken a stand for the gospel at your workplace. Or maybe among your neighbors or even your own family members. And you've only been met with opposition and disapproval. Or perhaps you're struggling in your marriage. You don't feel much connection to your spouse. Or you're overwhelmed as a parent. And, and you know that your desire is to obey Christ in both of these areas of your life. But you struggle to hold that together with the difficulty of it. Or, or maybe you don't know how you're going to pay your bills next month. Perhaps you're facing an illness or the general health effects that come with aging. Maybe you just struggle with anxiety or depression. Or perhaps there's nothing in particular that is casting a shadow over you except the general sense that God is distant from you. If that is you, Peter's word for you today is look up. Look past the shadow, past the cloud of your experiences and fix your eyes on the untouchable reality of the hope that you have 
in Jesus Christ. It is this hope that will carry you through your suffering with your faith intact. So I want to look deeper into the nature of this hope from these verses here in 1 Peter 1. Peter gives us three reasons for hope that will carry us through the sufferings of this age. Hope that will carry us through the sufferings of this age. The first reason is we have a hope. We have the hope of a future inheritance. We have the hope of a future inheritance in verses 3 to 5. When the Apostle Paul was on a second missionary journey, he and his partner Silas came to the city of Philippi in Macedonia. And while there, they proclaimed the good news of Jesus to the Philippians. During that time, Paul ended up casting a demon out of a servant girl of some masters who was using that demon to tell fortunes. And of course, that really set off her owners. That was their source of income. And so they decided they were going to do something about it. They dragged Paul and Silas before the local magistrate. And the magistrate, once he heard that Paul and Silas were charged with disturbing the peace, he had them stripped in front of the crowd, humiliated, beaten with rods, and then thrown into prison where they were placed in the innermost part of the prison with their feet in stocks. I want you to imagine the end of that day. You've been publicly humiliated, stripped in front of a crowd, beaten. You you still feel the pain from the rods on your back. You're in a dark cell where you cannot even move. And you don't know whether you will ever get out alive. What would you be thinking at midnight on that day? What would you be doing? According to Acts 16.25... At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That story tells me there is no inappropriate time to praise God. That's how Peter leads off the opening section of this letter after his greeting. With a word of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, some of his readers are suffering terribly. They have no certainty about what the immediate future holds. In one sense, Peter says, that doesn't even matter. In one sense, the shadow you're facing right now doesn't even matter. For believers in Christ, there is never a wrong time to praise God because the hope of our future inheritance still shines above the shadow of our sufferings. So Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here we have a window into the very heart of God. And it is the heart of a Father. Peter identifies Him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again. That word means He has fathered us again. He has become our Father through the Gospel and through the mysterious work of His Spirit in giving us new life, recreating us from the inside so that we might be made like Him and become His children We are sharers in the very sonship of Jesus Christ. The very love that the Father has for His Son, He now sets upon all who are in the Son. 
And so blessed be His name for causing us to be born again, for fathering us out of the abundance of His mercy. So great is His mercy that He has done such a thing. And Peter goes on to say it is to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, a question to raise here is that prepositional phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, does that go with He has caused us to be born again? In which case it would mean He has caused us to be born again through Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the basis for our being born again. That's true. And I think that's entirely possible that that's what Peter means. It could also be taken this way, however. He has caused us to be born again to a hope that is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, the hope itself is made living. It's not a dead hope, but is a living hope. I actually lean toward that interpretation that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has made our hope living, true. There is an objective reality that is the basis of our hope. It is not mere wishful thinking. It is not a dead hope that leads nowhere. It is living. When Jesus Christ walked out of His tomb on the first Easter Sunday, the whole world began to be remade. And that is the basis of the hope that we have in Him. Our living hope is further defined in verse 4 as an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. One commentator put it this way, it is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. That word inheritance has a rich Old Testament background. It was used to refer to the land of Canaan as the inheritance of the people of Israel. It was a rich promise of God to His elect people in the Old Covenant. And yet, Peter, picking up on that idea, is telling his readers, your inheritance in Christ far surpasses that one. Was the inheritance of Israel, the land of Canaan, was it imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? No. They were fully capable of defiling it. In fact, God warned them many times, do not defile the land, but they did. And in their defilement of the land, it was eventually taken from them in the exile. It was an inheritance, a glorious one, but only a shadow of a greater inheritance to come in Jesus Christ. And Peter tells us that this inheritance that is ours is indeed kept in heaven for you, kept in God's possession far beyond the reach of the forces of evil and decay that affect us today here on earth. God holds our inheritance and He will deliver it to us in time. I'm sure many of you have have heard of the word faith movement or uh, sometimes called name it and claim it theology. According to this teaching, it's a false teaching, but according to it, faith is a power that we exercise by, by thinking good thoughts and speaking good words so that we can actually create our own reality through our words. We can speak and create wealth for ourselves or create health. We can create the good life by the power of our words. Now that is a destructive heresy. But there is some truth in it. And I think that's the, the little element of truth that makes it so popular. And that element of truth is this. The way that we think 
And the things that we say do indeed profoundly impact our lives. Your thought patterns, your speech patterns, have a profound impact on the character of how you experience the world. Now, why is that? Here's where I would differ from the word faith movement. I would say it is not because we create a new reality by thinking, by speaking. It is rather, as the New Testament authors tell us, we take hold of a reality that's already there, but is simply not seen at the present. That is what Peter is calling us to do. Think on your inheritance. Even speak of your inheritance to come. Transform your life now by anticipating the reality that is to come. The unseen kingdom of God. The New Testament authors tell us of a hope of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. But perhaps the question is left out there hanging, what if I fail to reach that inheritance? It's there, but what if I myself don't make it to the end? Peter's already anticipating that in verse 5, where he tells his readers that they are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is not simply guarding our inheritance for us. He is guarding us for our inheritance. We are guarded by God's power through faith. Now, our faith is important. We are responsible to believe. But at the end of the day, our faith is upheld by the power of God who called us out of darkness, who gave us that faith, and who carries us to the end by faith. No power of hell, no scheme of man shall ever pluck me from his hand. As we sang just a moment ago, if, if you are in Christ, verse 5 gives you the assurance that God has you and he will not let his children go. And when you finally receive your inheritance, you will joyfully acknowledge that salvation from beginning to end and every step along the way is God's work. So by drawing attention from, uh, to our future inheritance and away from uh, the shadow that covers us, Peter seeks to disarm the power of our present sufferings over us. No matter how intense, how traumatizing, how devastating those sufferings are, Peter is saying to us, in a sense, it doesn't matter. All of those things are nothing compared to the glory of that is to be revealed to us. The shadow cannot touch the star that is far beyond its reach. So look up. Look up and see it there. Keep going by faith. But Peter then gives us a second reason for the hope that will carry us through the sufferings of this age. And it is this. We have the hope of God's purpose in our sufferings. We have the hope of God's purpose in our sufferings. When you look at verses 3 to 5, you might say, I get it. Suffering is temporary, but our future inheritance is forever. I can look beyond this light momentary affliction to the glory of the age to come, and I can see that by comparison, the two do not even begin to compare, and that is what can keep me going. So the temporary nature of the suffering we face 
is what will enable me to overcome it. That is all true. Peter has, has hit that theme hard, and he even notes in verse 6 that the suffering we face is for a little while. But in all of verses 6 to 9, Peter actually says more than that. He says there's actually an additional hope we have to face suffering now. And that is that God actually brings these sufferings into our lives in order to fulfill His specific good purpose. In other words, our suffering is never wasted. So it is not just the temporary nature of suffering that matters for the sake of our endurance. It is also God's purpose for our good through these sufferings. So where does Peter tell us this? Look at verse 6. He writes, in this, all that I've just described in verses 3 to 5, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Those words, if necessary, highlight the fact that suffering does not come into our lives if it is not necessary. Now, what is it that makes suffering necessary? Well, if you look a few chapters over to chapter 4, verse 19, Peter will say, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It is God's will that makes suffering necessary. We who take on a new identity in Christ put ourselves, by virtue of such, at odds with the world. And that inevitably leads to conflict, that inevitably leads to to suffering. And yet this is how God has ordained it for our good. You actually see that unpacked more in verse 7 where Peter says, we have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. The words so that make it abundantly clear there's a purpose here. God has allowed us to be grieved by various trials so that something better can happen. And that something better is that our faith, refined by the fires of affliction, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire. Think about that for a moment. Gold that is refined by fire is purified of all of its impurities and becomes a glorious substance. In fact, hard to think of a more durable substance on earth than purified gold. And yet Peter tells us even that will perish in the end. But you know what won't perish? Your faith. Your faith will endure the afflictions of this age on into the day of the final judgment where it will appear more precious than gold. It will be the only thing that matters on the day of the final judgment. The fact that you held on to Christ. And when that day comes, Peter says, it will result in praise, glory, and honor. Is he talking about us giving praise, glory, and honor to God? Well, we will do that. That's true. I don't think that's what Peter means here, though. When he says the tested genuineness of our faith will be found to result in praise, glory, and honor, Peter means praise, glory, and honor we will receive from God. 
on the day of the final judgment. Our faith that holds on to Christ through these sufferings, God will see us on that final day and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You held on to my son through it all. And that is the only thing that matters. At the bottom of our hearts, I think what we most long for is approval. We want to know that we matter. We want to know that we are loved. We want to know that we are accepted. And that is a desire that will be fully affirmed for all who are in Christ on the day of the final judgment. And it will be affirmed not because of who we are or what we have done, but solely because of our faith, which looks to Christ as our only hope. Now, what is remarkable here is that Peter tells us that the sufferings we now face are God's appointed means to refine our faith, to strengthen it, to purify it, so that when that day comes, when the final judgment is here, we will indeed receive the approval we long for. And we will receive it from God. The only opinion that matters. In verses 8 and 9 then, Peter shows us what the testing of faith looks like now. This is is how our lives are characterized as our faith is tested. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. By faith, we take hold of what is unseen. That is really what faith is. The ability to see what is unseen. The ability to take hold of the Christ who is not right now in front of our eyes. But we hear Him proclaim to us, we taste of His glory at the Lord's table. And we continue to hold to Him by faith. The amazing thing about this is that Peter tells us as we do these things, as we gather as the church and hear the Word of Christ proclaimed and and share at His table, and we do so facing the sufferings of this world we inevitably face, we are even now obtaining the outcome of our faith. That is, we are anticipating the glory that is to come. We are already tasting it in greater and greater depths through the sufferings that we face. When your life is going well and you are trusting in Christ, that's great. But when your world is shaken by trials and you continue to hold on to Christ and the roots of your faith reach new depths, this is what enables you to experience even now more of the wonder of your salvation. As Paul says it, In Romans 5, 3 and 4, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, when I say that God has a purpose in suffering, I don't mean that we can always or even often discern in the short term what that is. So I want to caution you against trying to draw a direct line from A to B when you or someone else is facing suffering. The Bible doesn't teach us to do it that way. 
God's ways are higher than our ways. Much remains hidden from us now. But we can affirm, even if we can't see it, we can affirm that everything God does, He does for a purpose. And He does it in wisdom for our good. And we do know, whatever the short-term goal may be, that God's ultimate purpose for us is that we may stand before Him on the final day and receive from Him praise glory, and honor. We may hear the approval of our Father because we have held on by faith. Have you ever heard the saying, God will never give you more than you can handle? You know, that's actually not in the Bible. But what is taught in the Bible is even better. God will never give you more than He has ordained for your ultimate good. God takes no delight in the needless suffering of His children, so He doesn't allow it. He wastes nothing. So be assured, if you are suffering, it is because God has deemed it necessary for the fulfillment of His good purpose for you. This is what makes it possible to rejoice and to grieve at the same time. Verse 6 makes that clear. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Can you rejoice and grieve at the same time? Peter assumes that you can. We don't minimize the reality of suffering. So we don't try to suppress the reality of grief. And yet, in the light of God's purpose, our grief should be the kind of grief that can't touch the depths of joy that lie beneath it. And so that's a second reason we have for hope in the face of the shadow of suffering. Peter then gives us a third. We have the hope of our privileged place in history and creation. We have the hope of our privileged place in history and creation. Verses 10 through 12. When I was in high school, I used to read Sports Illustrated. And every time I'd get a new edition, I would flip immediately to the back page because I always look forward to Rick Riley's column on the back page. One year, it's, it's remarkable to me, this has been almost 20 years ago, but uh, in, in 1998, the spring of 98, a column came out by Rick Riley where he said, speaking of class to the class of 98, and it was written like a graduation uh, address Only it was four college athletes who were about to move up into professional sports. And basically, Riley's going through a list of things, giving them some tips to basically tell them, this is how you can become a star and not be a jerk. So he goes through a list of very good advice. He finally gets to the end, and he says this. One last thing. Remember when you were a kid? All you dreamed about was playing center field for the New York Yankees. Soon you'll be there. Don't forget to tingle. In a sense, I think Peter's telling us in verses 10 to 12, don't forget to tingle at the amazing reality of the time in which you live. He's speaking to us in these verses about this salvation, verse 10. 
You go a little bit farther in the verse, he speaks of the grace that was to be yours. So he's still writing about our salvation in Christ. And this is what he tells us about it. In verses 10 and 11, he basically says this, the prophets of the Old Testament era, the authors of the Old Testament scriptures themselves, searched out and inquired carefully for the fulfillment of God's promise concerning the coming Messiah. They had a deep desire to know the the times and the the seasons. What would it be like when the Messiah came? But then verse 12 is key here. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This astounding word from Peter means... That the Old Testament scriptures were not written primarily for those who were contemporaries with their authors. The Old Testament scriptures were written primarily for us. They were written to point us to Jesus Christ. To show us, to, to put a neon sign that flashes right on Christ. And to say, there he is. Receive him. Not only were they written primarily for us, the men who wrote these things in the Old Testament knew that they were writing it for us. Peter tells us that. that It was revealed to them they were were writing these things for us who live on the other side of the cross in resurrection. Like Moses, they gazed over the horizon to a promised land that they would not enter with the hope that others would By their guidance. And now on this side of the cross, we are there. Jesus picks up on this theme a few places in Matthew 13, 17. He says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In John 8, 56, he said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What could that possibly mean? Jesus is defining greatness with reference to the clarity of being able to know and point to him. So he's saying, among those born of women, there's never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is pointing to me. He's testifying to me in a way no one else in history has. But guess what? He's going to be off the scene soon, and I'm going to go on and fulfill my redemptive work. After my death and my resurrection, I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father and inaugurate a kingdom. And even the least person in that kingdom is greater than John. Even the least person in that kingdom has a more clear understanding and has a more clear ability to testify to who I am and what I came to do than John the Baptist. We are living at the most privileged time in history on this side of Jesus' atoning work and resurrection. Peter takes it one step further. Not only are we at a privileged place in history, We are also at a privileged place in all of creation. 
Notice how he ends verse 12. He notes that the things that concern our salvation in Christ are things into which angels long to look. Now imagine that. Angels long to look into these things. And in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John receives a series of visions from an angel. And after the last vision has been given in Revelation 22 verse 8, John tells us that he fell down to worship the angel. And he was promptly rebuked. Worship me, worship God, the angel says. Of course, we can understand why a man would fall down and worship an angel. Angels to us are mysterious, powerful, heavenly beings that evoke awe and wonder. But men will not spend eternity worshiping angels. By contrast, angels will spend eternity worshiping a man. And John had already written of this in Revelation 5, 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Angels worshiping the man. Christ Jesus. God the Son became incarnate not as an angel, but as a man. And because of that, the destiny of man is greater even than the destiny of angels. We are privileged not only to live in the day longed for by the prophets of old, but to be human beings who share in the exaltation of humanity in Jesus Christ over the whole cosmos. When you think of it that way, when you locate your place in the story, does that put a different perspective on your present sufferings? In 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria finds that every time he plans a raid onto the nation of Israel, He's thwarted because there's a prophet in Israel, Elisha, and Elisha receives a revelation from God about the king's plans every time the king is about to attack. And when he figures that out, out that that's what's going on, the king of Syria decides it's time to take Elisha the prophet out. So he finds out where Elisha's residing, the city of Dothan, and he sends an army and he sends his chariots, which are the super weapons of that time, He sends his army with chariots and horses and they surround the city of Dothan by night. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up and he sees that this is the predicament we're in. He he goes to his master. He says, what shall we do? Elisha responds, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays for God to open the eyes of of his servant, and immediately his servant can see that all around them is a heavenly army of horses and chariots of fire. He was in a predicament that looked very bad on the surface, but when given eyes to see the deeper spiritual reality that was already there, it changed everything. 
I do hope that if you're facing a shadow now, if you will in the future, you will come back to 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, and you will seek to reorient your, your perspective, your vision, to the deeper spiritual reality of the immense privilege you have to be a human being at this time in history who shares in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We have a hope that is able to carry us through the sufferings of this age. It is the hope of a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. It is the hope of our present sufferings serving God's purpose of refining our faith in preparation for the day when He will give to us praise, glory, and honor at the final judgment. It is the hope of our privileged place in history, the time that the prophets longed for, and of our privileged place in creation, which draws the astonished wonder of angels. Under the darkness of the present shadow, this is all the reason that we need to look up and to press on by faith. Now, one of the ways God has given us to look up and to press on is the celebration of the Lord's Supper, where we taste once again a a foretaste of the messianic banquet when we will be with Christ forever. So I want to invite everyone here, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are a baptized member of a church in good standing, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. Now let me address those two groups briefly, if that doesn't apply to you. If you are not a believer, if you have not publicly confessed faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do so today. Peter speaks of us being born again to a living hope. If the Word of God has come to you in the power of the Spirit and is bringing forth faith, is showing you that Jesus Christ crucified for your sins, risen from the dead for your hope before God, if you find yourself believing that message today, then come tell one of us. Come tell us because... What you need to do then is make that public. You need to be publicly marked out as a believer in Christ. And we we would be happy to arrange for you to be baptized to show that. So if you're not a believer in Christ, if you haven't professed that publicly, we invite you to come and talk to us about that. And then if you are a believer in Christ, but not a member of a church in good standing, we also ask you not to eat with us this morning. This is a meal that is a covenantal meal. There's There's accountability that goes with it. And that's why we ask only for for those who belong to a church. Uh, But you can rectify that as well. If you're not a member in good standing with the church or you've lost connection with the church where your membership is, we want you to talk to us about that as well. Uh, What uh, what, what steps you can take to move forward to to move into covenantal union with us? We are eager to have all of you eat and to drink with us. So we invite you to come and to, to speak to us about that today. Otherwise, we invite you to eat with us Uh, eat and drink the Lord's body and blood with us this morning. And as we do so, I'd like us to take a moment of silence while everybody gets in place. Would you just bow and take a moment of silence, reflect on the wonder of what God has given us in Christ as we prepare the table.